Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Human Behavior Show. And as you know, our podcast is available on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. So this is going to be a really good episode for people who are interested in human behavior, psychology, neuroscience. We're going to be going live with Evan, uh, talking about all things behavioral science and really kind of working out what makes people tick, why we make certain decisions. And since I got into human behavior, um, one of my kind of missions has been to kind of bring people who are super interested in behavior to the human behavior entity. So uh, super excited for that. So welcome, first of all, Evan, welcome to the 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 podcast and would love for you to kind of introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Um, I am a accidental behavioral scientist, I, I guess you could say. Um, and I studied it in, in college. I loved it. We used to have these people from the FBI and CIA come in and teach us what to look for in facial expressions and lines and faces and nonverbal communication. And it got me really into the underlying psychology and neuroscience of all of it. Uh, and I kind of uh, used it in a sense to start a bunch of companies, mostly in the data and analytics space. And we just seem to have these really high performing teams, these really smart uh, engaged cultures and the businesses did really well and uh, produced great work. And uh, it started to kind of look like an outlier. And I started realizing that it all came down to just this understanding of how human beings work. And without that, it, I would have just been like any other regular old company struggling with team dynamics and struggling with innovation. But because we had this magical tool, uh, we were able to build some really, really cool companies and great teams. That's a super exciting story, Evan, and how you know, studied behavioral science, then you, you know, went into entrepreneur, but you use a lot of those underpinnings of how human behavior works to be successful. And guys, for those who don't know, Evan and I actually <laughs> met on Twitter, and I came across one of his tweet threads um, on the five motivational systems, which was super interesting. Kind of listed them out. We did like a, a show on that recently, actually. So you can check that out. Uh, and I was like, I need to get Evan and <laughs> you need to uh, pick his brain. And as I was doing that, I had a message from Evan um, on Twitter about a year ago when Clubhouse was pretty big. And um, I was like, oh, he's already reached out to me. So we went from, um, and this is the power of the internet, I think, or the online world, is that having never met, never really communicated, um, Twitter feeds and algorithms fed me his content. I mentioned human behavior, but people I know had liked it. And he had seen my content previously and messaged me and within an hour we were, we were doing a show which was super successful so that's that power of kind of social acceleration that i think the internet holds so that's super powerful as well so evan in in behavior so so being an entrepreneur designing products how do you think about consumer behavior we have all these social media apps nowadays that try and become stickier or increase retention Instagram being one and they play on dopamine, et cetera. Could you kind of hone into that a bit and, and kind of let us know on, on what your thoughts are on building companies with behavior is and kind of uh, specifically kind of consumer apps? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've spent a lot of my career in B2B uh, personally, but we, we would do data and analytics work and product work and marketing work for a lot of consumer companies. So the, uh, I was fortunate. Well, and also government and, so, you know, all sorts of industrial, all, all these different industries. So I've been really fortunate to be 
exposed to kind of practically everything. But I think we definitely live right now in an era that is kind of punctuated by everybody being super overwhelmed. And consumer behavior, I think, reflects that um, people have priorities uh, and they we have limited cognitive capacity to keep track of uh, all the stuff that's going on in our life right now. So if we have a blocker, a barrier, a need, um, we either want to fix it or escape it. And we're seeing a lot of consumer behavior about both. I mean, obviously, travel and gaming and um, all the kind of distraction type consumerism is our 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 flight response <laughs> from being overwhelmed. Uh, we just want some endorphin and we just want some dopamine and we just want some oxytocin through human bond, shared experiences, going to concerts together, stuff like that. We want all these positive emotions because the rest of our day is filled with cortisol and stress and maybe even resentment or anger or frustration, norepinephrine. Um, and, you know, our bodies crave these chemicals. They, they crave the feeling of autonomy and stability and resilience and happiness and pleasure and these types of things. And our bodies don't like long-term soaking in stress and resentment and fear. Uh, and our bodies actually don't like soaking long-term in pleasure either. It, it feels empty after a while. So I think the other half of consumerism is, is kind of the good, healthy half, uh, doing things that create um, more of a sense of autonomy and resilience. You see a lot of people I mean, it's not really a B2C product necessarily, but you see a lot of people in the professional world investing in coaching. And there isn't a better investment other than, you know, therapy coaching um, for you to increase those good chemicals of your sense of resilience and autonomy and control over your own life. Uh, it's probably a better investment than a video game. <laughs> so if you have the choice, uh, definitely go ahead and pursue both, but don't forget to invest in the in the things that are actually really good for you. But I do think we're in an era of consumerism where escapism is, is almost preyed upon. You know, there's so many brands and companies selling products, services, goods, experiences that are helping you get away from the rest of this life that might be overwhelming or even um, creating resentment. And I think because there's so many brands and so many advertisers kind of trying to get to you and get into your wallet and get into your mind, get your time, especially social media wants your time. Um, you have to, we have to be also in an era of protecting ourselves from that and investing in things that uh, build our lives for the good way and not just the escapist, escapist way. I think that's super well explained and I can definitely see why um, that's something that's, um, you know, re really helps people uh, make decisions and why people make decisions and, how people can be more addicted to certain products or people can get more interested in certain things and, and how, you know, as you said, we are overwhelmed. There's so much noise and so much, um, things that are trying to get our attention in this attention economy, um, and kind of navigating that as a human and how now we design products to kind of beat that. So Evan, in terms of, in terms of behavior, so, we talked about the five systems recently the show. And for those who don't know, can you quickly reel them off? Yeah, we're, when we behave, when we choose actions, there's underlying motivations. And the, the point of the tweet the other day was about how much behavioral advice I see in people. You know, people need to stay more organized. People need to read more books. People need to exercise more. People need to this. They need to that. And 
that behavioral advice fails a lot because it doesn't take into account the motivation systems that the person is dealing with in their life in that moment and how, um, you know, people that exhibit these behaviors more readily, they have very different motivations in their life than you and I do. And that's why they do these things. They don't do them because they're just like us and they making different choices. Uh, and at an extreme end, you look at this guy that free climbed El Capitan, right? And a lot of people are so in admiration of his bravery, which is worthy of admiration until you kind of put him in an MRI and find out that his amygdala doesn't work. The part of the brain that senses fear and threat and kind of wants to preserve your life, it doesn't work. And and the same thing happens in people that race motorcycles. You put them in an MRI and their amygdalas don't work like yours and mine do. So they're not just like us and doing a different thing. They're just not like us. They don't feel fear or they feel much less of it. So they have more of thrill-seeking behavior on the outside. So those five motivators, they start with your personality and your personality is just kind of the observable aspect of how your brain is built. And you know, like, like we talked about, some amygdalas are hyperactive and people experience a lot of anxiety. Uh, some amygdalas are hyper inactive and people go free climbing El Capitan. And that crosses the dimensions of extroversion, uh, openness, neuroticism, compassion, and agreeableness, those types of things. So that's kind of the fundamental. That's like what your brain automatically wants to do in a situation, your fundamental motivational system. And then on top of that, you have a mindset, which is the mood you're in. So I can be a super creative person who's in a terrible mood and do uncreative things. So your mindset kind of layers on top of your personality. And if you're in a great mood, a resilient mood, a terrible mood, a resentful mood, you'll do very different things. Your behavior will reflect that. So people who, you know, people who give advice, like look at the bright side. And if somebody's in a state of depression, that is not a behavior they are capable of doing. <laughs> so that's why they get frustrated. Like, why can't I look at the bright side? It's not that simple. You don't just do stuff. On top of your mindset, you then kind of graduate to your skill set. Uh, skill set creates approach avoided behavior. So the more skilled you are at something, the more likely you are to approach it and try it out and, and feel ready to take it on. The less skilled you are at something, generally speaking, people have more of an avoidance behavior. They're more hesitant to engage with something. Um, and we see certainly cases where there are exceptions to that because a personality that's very assertive might approach something that they're a total amateur at. And we see that a lot in the Peter principle at work where people are promoted beyond their capability and they're assertively doing things they have no idea what they're doing. Um, that's kind of an internal conflict that's a major problem in the business world. And then you enter, those are those three of your personality, your mindset and your skill set. Those are all internal motivators. Those are things that happen inside of your head. And then there's two more outside of your head. The first is the culture or social norms that you find yourself in. As a species, we generally want to fit in. We consider it, most people consider it very dangerous to fit in. The book Obedience to Authority kind of puts out there that about 86% of people will do what an authority figure tells them to do. Only 14% will refuse and kind of deviate and kind of break those social norms. And you lastly have incentive systems. So if you if there are bonuses or rewards associated with doing something, that will motivate your behavior. And some people find it really difficult to do something that's against an incentive system. So you look at those five things and they, they kind of work in that order. Um, and the post also is kind of about how much we over-rely on incentives to accomplish what 
these other four motivators should be accomplishing. You can't create an incentive that's in conflict with culture and and have that incentive work properly or that culture work properly. You can't create a culture that's in conflict with a person's personality and expect that culture or that personality to work properly. So that's kind of where people get lost. And I, it, it's important for you to know if you're going to try a behavior out, right, one of these recommendations for being more organized or waking up earlier, or brushing your teeth 12 times a day and flossing and all the kinds of behavioral recommendations you'll get. Um, it's important for you to know how easy or hard that's going to be for you based on your personality, your current mindset, your current skill set, et cetera. And then invest in yourself where you need to, to make the motivational system work so that the behavior can work. That's pretty much what the, the post was about. Yeah, I found that super useful. And I think that um, anyone reading it would get a lot from that because I think they're essentially the underlying uh, concepts that make us all tick. And you mentioned work, and I do want to kind of focus on that. What are your thoughts on, A, the shift to remote work? Behaviors have changed because of that, right? Um, a lot of people feel more comfortable, feel a bit more in control and autonomous. And I know I do, and I'm a big advocate for remote work. But there's also a push now to get people back into the office. And I feel personally it's to kind of instill fear and control and all of that rather than the autonomy of employees. Um, so what do you think? Why do you think that behavior shift has occurred? And, and why do you think companies sometimes want people back in to the office um, and how do you think it's best to navigate that? If you're, if you're an employee or whatever, I know you work with a lot of companies and company structure. How would you push back and, and say to a company that, Hey, how would you tackle that behavior and be like, I'm more productive whilst at home? That's a great question. I mean, a huge topic, obviously these days, and you can see in the headlines that Google's return to work thing resulted in huge backlash and then companies um, saying that you can work anywhere is resulting in better retention Although we're looking at retention in a pretty small time frame right now, uh, we'll see if that sticks. But I think this is a great example of looking at the difference between the behavioral aspect. Are we going to work? Are we staying remote? Are we doing a hybrid? And the motivational aspect, which is why are we choosing one of these behaviors? And I want to draw attention to two fundamentally different motivations that drive wanting to come back into the office. One of them isn't so great which is the one you're talking about, kind of the autocratic controlling mindset. Um, and that is a matter of personality. Disagreeable people uh, will want to control other people and will, and will want them back in the office to make controlling easier and oversight easier. Um, they fundamentally believe that people won't work as well, as much, as effectively, um, kind of in that autocratic hierarchy without being in line of sight. And I think that's not a great motivator for this. The other motivator, which I think is something pe more people probably need to consider is what I might call the Pixar motivator. And I would recommend to anybody, uh, just in general, there's a great documentary about Pixar and how they make movies. And you'll see a lot of scenes where the producers and artists will come into a theater to kind of review a scene or even review the, the, the film itself. And they're all watching it and they'll pause it at these different times and talk about what they just saw as a group. And there is no asynchronous way to recreate the unbelievable genius that occurs at the group level in that auditorium by everybody being there together, 
seeing it at exactly the same time, hearing each other's thoughts, reacting in real time and reacting to reactions and reacting to reacting to reactions, right? It's, that is uh, group genius. And in our work, we study the difference between individual performance, individual human performance and group performance. And groups are capable of being much less intelligent than any individual in the group. And groups are also capable of being much more intelligent than any member of the group. And it's a simple Venn diagram of the intellect in the room where the case where groups become dumber is where they become consensus seeking. It ends up in a least common denominator model or in a Venn diagram, it turns into the intersection of everybody's intelligence. So if your circle and my circle walk in the room, the overlap of our two circles is all that we're gonna agree to. If we walk in with a Socratic mentality, Socrates was more interested in what he didn't know than what he did know, we will actually get the union of those two circles instead of the intersection. And that room, that combination of the two of us will be more intelligent than either of us has any remote capability of being. And what's funny is if you look at unions and intersections, as you grow the size of the room, n equals two, n equals three, four, five, the intelligence shrinks at an accelerating pace when you are dealing with unions because that slice of the overlap of the circles gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And when you have an intersection of intelligence, that, that kind of mass of intelligence keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger at a potentially accelerating pace. So that's kind of my take on remote work is ultimately groups of human beings are just, um, kind of electrical storms of intellect and knowledge and intelligence and logic and creativity. And if groups of people culturally are combining reductively, <laughs> like they're doing that intersection, the group means I don't get to say everything that I know because somebody would be offended if I said it. That's reductive intelligence. That's self-censorship that happens in dysfunctional cultures. Then in person kind of makes less sense than remote. Let, let's keep work asynchronous. Let's pass things back and forth with email and looms and let people pick up on points where other people left off. But if the group has the capacity for combining intellect and Socratic conversation, then there is no way uh, to do that other than to be together as a group working synchronously. That doesn't necessarily require physical uh, proximity, right? You don't have to all be in the same room, but in my own experience, and I can't speak beyond that, um, I don't have any research on this. I find that groups doing that in person do seem to produce better outcomes than groups doing that on the Brady Bunch tiles of a Zoom call. And that's just kind of, I think there's more nonverbal communication, more nuance to that um, in-person kind of thing. And I think the optimal approach is just figuring out when do you need Pixar genius and making sure that you're facilitating that optimally. And then when you're fine with asynchronous work, which a lot of people I think over index on, they think all their work is fine asynchronously. Um, then you can work fully remote, fully asynchronously, even calendar wise, doesn't even have to be limited to, to location. It can be limited to time of day. So kind of goes back and forth that way, in my opinion. I'm absolutely loving this conversation, Evan, and you make so much sense. And I, I wish, uh, more leaders could kind of understand what you've just kind of explained um, because 
I hear a lot of excuses from work companies saying, oh, it's for your learning and development, it's for this, office culture. What does that really mean? It's just words in the end of the day for control. Um, and you've explained it so well on kind of how teams work and, and why remote is, is an option, but also you can be in person in, in certain scenarios, but ultimately remote done in the right way, you can achieve, you know, in, in certain roles, what you need and be more productive. And that's definitely the case for me. So why do you think for, for intelligent individuals, right? Um, like I would hope to think we are, right? If my preference is to work remotely, why would a company say in the COVID that, that would be remote all of a sudden be like, actually, we want you back in the office, even if you would explain the science, the research, um, what, what would be the best way if you have, so, so I'm actually, when, this is going into the persuasion, the human behavior, why humans behave the way they do, ego, etc. cetera. Um, if, you, if you get pushed back for something, people don't want to agree to it. There's some strategies you can use to persuade people. So kind of from, from your, your learnings, what are the best ways to convince someone for an alternative option to what, say, your manager, whatever they're preferring, right? What would be the best way to, to approach that? I mean, I think the thing that is most effective um, isn't necessarily the best way. The most effective mechanism is experimentation. And that means that that boss has to be open to an experiment. And that means that you have to be open to an experiment. And an, an experiment that has some sanctity is one where nobody sabotages the experiment to force a result. Um, and I think a lot of people who have this preference for remote need to experiment with a Pixar-like meeting, you know, once a week, once, once a month, whatever the frequency is, give it a fair shot and see if they can acknowledge, yes, this did definitely work better or no, it didn't work better than it would have uh, if we didn't do it this way. And similarly, that, that boss, that leader or whatever, um, needs to be open to the experiment and the results of the experiment too. And I think that too many people are trying to pre-process outcomes without experimentation. It's like when uh, I just spoke with a, a, uh, an executive yesterday and they did this offsite and all the executives were completely against it. They said, we don't have time for this. How can you prove it's worth our time? How can you prove it's worth the energy and the cost and all this stuff? And this guy just said, will you guys shut the hell up about proof in advance and just try it? Cause we've never tried one of these before and they had it and everybody walked out saying, this is one of the best things we've ever done. And you see that happen over and over and over and over and over again, because the truth is as smart as we are as humans, we actually don't always really know what's best for us. So it's better to have a mindset of experimentation. Uh, and even if the result fails in the experiment, figure out really precisely why it failed. It may not be kind of holistically a failure. There may have been some key factors that, that caused it to fail. So that's the most effective thing. And when I talk to people about what I do, what people ask the same question they would ask about this offsite, how can you, what results are you gonna produce? How can we be sure it's gonna work, all this stuff? And I'm like, what, what life are you living that you believe anybody can prove anything in advance? That is not reality. Um, what that is, is your conscientious brain, your knowledge center, your memory recall center, fooling the rest of your brain into thinking that certainty is possible. Um, and, and that part of your brain will tell you things like, I've seen this before and it didn't work, or I've seen it before and it did work. 
And that's how people get conned and manipulated is they prey on your memory systems and your familiarity systems to make sure that you're pattern matching against a yes or pattern matching against a no. Your prefrontal cortex takes major issue with that. You know, if you really analyze the ins and outs of things, your prefrontal cortex will be like, okay, I know the memory says that this won't work, but the memory is wrong. So I, I'm a big believer in experimentation. I try to live that out myself and recommend that everybody just experiment a handful of times a week with something that they don't believe will work or do believe will work um, and stop trying to kind of be right about everything. Um, as human beings, that's not a condition where <laughs> we find ourselves in very often where we're actually certifiably 100% right about something or wrong. So we're all trying to figure it out. Experiments are the best way to do that. Um, but if somebody's particularly stubborn, I think there's a whole slew of other techniques to to reach out for um, to train their memory with new facts. And that's why Harvard Business Review exists as a magazine. It exists because the memories of 80%, 90% of executives don't have any memory of good culture is better. They have memory of being ruled autocratically by an old manager and that's kind of what they learned uh, they don't have any memory of how innovation really works they don't have any memory of how employee engagement works they don't have any memory of remote because they've never seen it before and harvard business review is just a magazine designed to load their memory with credible new facts so they can stop being stubborn about dusty old crusty useless facts <laughs> and it, i you know i always when I'm in the grocery store and I see a cover of Harvard Business Review, not to be too rude, but to be pretty rude, I always just ask myself, how stupid would I have to be to need to read that? Like, it's incomprehensible to me that somebody could need to crack that magazine open to, to overcome some internal barrier to realizing that relationships are important at work. Innovation works in the following ways and so on and so on. It's bizarre to me, but that's the nature of personality and the spectrum of humans that are out there. And as mean as I'm being to the people that need that to get over the hump, those people are also really good at things that I'm not so good at. And I appreciate that in them. So that's kind of, I know that's a, a, a more tangential answer, but experimentation, I think is the key. And if you can't get people into an experimental mindset, you know, then you're just going to have to almost manipulate them to get what you want. And I think a set of running shoes is your best your best tool to get out of that situation, not some you know miraculous manipulation technique. Yeah, I actually love that um, how you've explained that as well. <laughs> I'm actually loving this conversation overall because that really gets to the crux of how people think. Why an organization's corporate structure set up the way they do, and the archaic leadership you see at times when the data shows otherwise. Um, and there's so many things at play when it comes to work. And I just kind of did want to focus this podcast on that work side because I know you talk a lot about that with your company as well. Um, and, and it shows that you really think deeply about this. Um, and essentially, so now with, with work cultures evolving and we know Gen Z and behavior is changing, behavioral patterns changing in the experience economy. Don't you think corporates or businesses are a disadvantage if they aren't offering the perks that people want? So if someone is for example, preferring remote work, they can go get another role uh, and they might take a lower pay, but, but that's something they would optimize for. So if you have a good employee, employee that's successful, how much of it, how willing would, would you be to lose that person because you're not allowing them to be remote? 
Um, do you think that could signify something deeper um, that in terms of like, maybe they do want to get rid of the employee, but, but I know in COVID, a lot of people were signed on say fully remote, but the contracts didn't state it. And all of a sudden that changed. So it's kind of making people think, Hey, if we've got another offer, we'll leave. How does that come across from a behavioral point of view of someone who is your manager? If they think you have another offer, is that something they feel like, Oh, let's offer them remote so we can keep them. Or behaviorally, would they be thinking, oh, okay, if they are willing to leave, then let's let them go? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great question. And it's the second time in this conversation you've mentioned a really important point, really important factor, is that I've had the, the good fortune and the time to think pretty deeply about some of these topics. And um, we referencing the first thing we talked about, we are in a very busy, overwhelmed world right now. So empathetically, I definitely have some understanding and some empathy toward executives who have not thought this through, who have not thought deeply about what they're doing, why they're doing it, the best ways to do it, the best types of policies to craft or the best type of flexibility to implement. And I I empathize with them because they are super, super overwhelmed people. And that's kind of where my empathy begins and ends because even though you are overwhelmed, thinking deeply about these problems is a much more important priority than many of the priorities that these executives are trading off for. And I've talked to one company in particular who's interested in working with us now for about nine months. And for nine months, they just keep saying, we're two heads down right now, we're two heads down right now. And they're not coming up for oxygen. And what's going to cause this to kind of tilt for them, not just working together eventually, but making this a priority eventually for them is they're following the same pattern that many other businesses have followed. And we kind of already know where it's leading. It's going to lead to burnout. It's going to lead to employee turnover. They're going to lose key employees with key uh, intellectual property and knowledge. It's going to cost on average of companies 400 to 600% of a person's salary to replace a person who has key intellectual property for a business. And so it's just economically a terrible thing to get to the point where it, it becomes a problem for you. But this company will experience churn, will experience burnout because yes, they're trying really hard to grow their company, but everybody in these roles in engineering roles, design roles, product roles, sales roles, et cetera, there is a better option for them out there. Absolutely. Where their talent could be deployed with less stress, less cortisol, less burnout, with greater rewards financially, socially, and otherwise. And it is really irrational to run a business at that pace without looking around you long enough to realize this person, all these people, all these critical people to our business have much better options than us if we are running this way. So they'll get to that point, like so many companies do, they'll lose some key people, and they'll call me or they'll call somebody else, like you know, doing something similar to what we do. And they'll say, oh my gosh, we have this major problem. We're losing everybody. It's urgent now, not just important. Let's fix it. So it's a real shame that that goes on. And again, while I do have empathy for how overwhelmed people are, um, I don't have much empathy for the fact that they're not trading off thinking time for execution time to also go deep into this, to also look around the corner. Einstein had this great quote, uh, intellectuals solve problems, 
geniuses prevent them. And while that phrase may seem unapproachable to a lot of people, because they might not feel like an Einstein-level genius, that isn't really what Einstein meant. Einstein just meant that in a state, in a, in a mindset of genius, your mind is trying to figure out how to prevent problems from happening in the first place. And if you're not in that mindset, then the problems will not be prevented. They will occur. And then you're going to be spending your bandwidth and time in kind of probably an unwelcome time frame. You know, it will become urgent. It will become bigger than things you would rather be working on. Uh, and you'll be in problem solving mode instead of problem prevention mode, which takes much less effort. So I talk to teams in a really practical way about their cadences and their operating rhythms that if you spend about 11 or 12% of your year on meta work, on thinking about how well are we operating? What are smart approaches to things? What condition are our tools and data processes in? Uh, what are policies like remote work, et cetera, like we're talking about now? If you take a step out of the execution to ask yourself, what's the health of my business? What, what long-term experiences am I trying to design and work my way toward? Uh, and then get back down into the micro. If you spend that 12% stepping back, you have a good 80, 85% uh, of your year left over for execution. But if you don't take that big step back, what you end up doing is spending about 25 or 30% of your year in meetings, just staying in sync with teams on execution. And that 80% execution ratio that you have actually comes down to like 50 or 40 or 30. And you can see this definitely like in enterprise sales, uh, enterprise sales teams on average, the average rep on an enterprise sales team spends less than 30% of their year actually talking to customers and almost 70% of their year in internal meetings. So just imagine if you could cut some of that time down, what your sales trajectories could look like if you could get a rep to spend half of their time or 60% of their time or 70% of their time in front of customers instead of in front of their internal colleagues. That's kind of the, the calculus that's missing from the shallow thinking. Um, and then Harvard Business Review and others are kind of coming along to nudge people in the right direction. And for that, I appreciate them. But again, I ask that question. It's like it shouldn't even be necessary in the first place because we should make the time to think. We should rebalance these ratios. And we actually get a lot of time back when we do. So, again, you know, you asked a question specifically about remote work. I think it all boils down to thoughtfulness, designing solutions that make sense for your business. If you are Pixar, you're going to need a different policy than if you are, you know, a, a, a factory or, or a, a software company making, you know, enterprise billing software or something like, I mean, it's just really different and you have to be thoughtful about it and tr not try to find the rubber stamps between the, the covers of Harvard Business Review for your business. <laughs> <laughs> Evan, I've loved this this episode, and, and obviously I'm looking forward to doing lots more with you. Um, very well spoken, and you know, just the, the thoughtfulness in your responses is pretty incredible. Obviously, very well versed in company culture, startups, as well as kind of behavior as well. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on this in this episode. Um, I know there's so much we could have talked about, but I really want to focus in on kind of some of the practical aspects, which we did of people, you know, especially with work, et cetera, right now. So I do want to know as you round up, how can people follow you? How can they engage with you? What are some of the best ways? Yeah. I mean, when people ask what I do for a living, uh, one thing I like to tell them is 
I do some things for free and I do some things that aren't for free. So <laughs> the things that are for free are I love to produce content um, because I'd love to help people beyond the scale that my business can um, through the coaching that I do, through the executive work I do, through management training. We make software that helps companies optimize their time and optimize relationships and manage better, sell better. Um, but I do like to help people kind of at scale. So I'm, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn fairly constantly. I'm at Evan LaPointe on Twitter. Um, and I try to reply to people and help, you know, I try to really carve out time in my, in my day to give, um, because I do want people to be happier at work. I want them to be more fulfilled and less in this kind of escapist mentality where they work for part of their day and then get away from life for the rest of their day. Um, that that's sad uh, that that's the case for too many people. Uh, and then on the not so free side, I, I, you can find me at core sciences.com. Uh, our general approach is kind of like teaching people how to fly. You know, we don't just give you an airplane with a bunch of switches and dials in it and say, good luck. Uh, there's education that people need to understand how human beings work, how, how people think, how these motivational systems work, practical ways of building culture so that you get these behaviors you're looking for out of the team. Uh, we help people learn their way and build their way through that skill set. And then we offer a bunch of tools on the back end to help people understand themselves, the people they work with, how to handle certain meetings and collaboration better. Uh, and those tools, once you know how to fly the plane, really help you perform at a, at a high performance state instead of entering states of dysfunction and stuff like that. So that's how to find me. That's the kind of stuff that um, I like to help people out with. So would love to hear from anybody uh, interested in free or not so free uh, partnership on, on these kinds of things. I, I really just love happier, more fulfilled people. And that's the goal. That's a great mission, and, and that's one of my goals of the Human Behavior Club. How can we make everyone happier and, and make more optimal decisions and talk about human performance as well? Fascinating, guys. Do follow Evan. That was it from the Human Behavior Show. We'll be back with another episode. This will be available straight away on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so I'll be posting the link out as well. Evan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Looking forward to future ones as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye.